Great, thank you, Jill. Well, keep the passage um, open in front of you. My microphone is switched on, so just checking that. For the last few weeks, if you've been uh, with us in the book of Romans, you'll know that Paul has been trying to persuade us that each and every sin will be judged by a God who is good and who is committed to justice. It's, uh, it's an uncomfortable idea, isn't it? But it doesn't, matter, uh, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't even really matter why you did it. The truth is, the inescapable truth, says Paul, is that we live in a moral universe governed by a moral God who is committed to seeing justice done for every wrong deed done by everyone. Chapter 2, verse 2 says he will rightly judge, he will truly judge. But there's a detail in this that we, we mustn't miss. Uh, because the fact is that, that Paul is not teaching this so much to the world out there. He's not like, waving the finger at the bad world and saying to the bad world, you know, sin is outside the church, you know, you're all going to hell. That's not what he's doing. I mean, there is a sense of that, isn't there, that outside of Christ, hell is the destiny of our world. But remember, the world is not so much Paul's audience as he writes these words. Instead, he's writing to the church. He's writing to the people in this room, isn't he? Telling you and I that we must not forget. We must, in this room, rightly understand that God is a moral God committed to a right, just judgment day, judging each and every sin in accordance with his moral law. It, it's fascinating when you think about it like that, isn't it? it just step outside of the letter for a moment and think, you know, Paul is writing to a church he's never been, he's never visited, he didn't start the church. He's hoping that this church might send him on his way to Spain. It, it's a, if you like, it's a kind of fundraising and and mission-raising letter. He's hoping these guys will be his enthusiastic supporters. And as he sculpts the letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he starts with three chapters, pretty much, going on and on and on and on and on. That every sin will be rightly judged. Every sin will be rightly judged. Every, did, I, did I tell you? Every sin will be rightly judged. Now, why would he do it? Who would start a letter like that? Well, Paul does, because he seems to think that our Christian maturity... Our enthusiasm for mission, our usefulness and effectiveness in the life of the church is directly connected to our grasp of this truth, that God is a just judge over every sin in every place. And before we go any further, it's worth just pondering on that, isn't it? That, that my enthusiasm, your enthusiasm, and confidence in the Christian life, our joy together in the Lord Jesus Christ, our certain hope in the doctrines of grace, our willingness to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ, even when it costs us something, our strength to fight for holiness and against worldliness, our health, even our health as a, as a local church corporately, all of these are directly related to the firmness of our grasp that every individual outside of Christ, including us in this room, rightly and justly and certainly deserves to go to hell forever. Think about how it works. Imagine that you're on an aeroplane. Someone walks down the aisle of the aeroplane and they say, yeah, put on your life jacket and get in the brace position. Put on your life jacket and get in the brace position. 
You look at them and say, you know, what, are you, what are you talking about? How annoying. I'm reading a book. Leave me alone. I'm having a nice time. I'm thinking about the holiday that I'm going on. Uh, of course, if someone tells you to put on your life jacket and take the brace position without telling you that the plane is about to crash, of course, it makes no sense, does it? And it's the same here with salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you and I are thoroughly persuaded that we live in a world where a moral God will rightly judge every sin, unless we understand that, we won't understand that salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ is the most beautiful and wonderful thing that we need. It only makes sense, doesn't it? If we're thoroughly persuaded that God rightly judges each sin, holding every individual to account for what they've done. And Paul knows that we are so quick at losing sight of that. It's such a basic fact, isn't it? And yet we so quickly lose sight of it. We love to find wiggle room in it. So he spends three chapters just warning us, listen, the plane is crashing. The plane is crashing. The plane is crashing, he says. God will judge all of us. Now, one word that Paul repeatedly uses to make this point is the word under. So if you glance back, you'll see that he's been talking in chapter 2, verse 12, and again in chapter 3, verse 19, about Jews being under the law. This law is is God's self-revelation, his holy will. It was meant to govern and stand over the people and stand over their behavior. In other words, what is right and true and good is not a matter of their feelings, but it's a matter of who God is and how he has revealed himself in his law. It's an objective reality outside of ourselves. And it stands over, the law stands over the Jews. It it rules and governs their behavior, flowing from the character of God recorded in the scriptures. So that when Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3, it's a great blessing to the Jews to have that law. He's been talking that we're all going to be judged, but what's the point in being a Jew then? Well, it's a great blessing to have God's law because it's the oracles of God. The law, the oracles of God, point you to your guilt and the promise of salvation and a coming saviour, and it's good to know that. Just because the Jews never kept the law doesn't undermine the promises it makes or the faithfulness of the promise keeper, even. Because, verse 4, it's okay, isn't it, for the whole world to be a liar and God to be the only true person. Nor should having the law ever be an excuse for sin. You know, even if the law is unkeepable in its very nature, it doesn't mean that it's an excuse for sin. Rather, the point is the oracles of God given to the Jews and the conscience given to all of us is to prove that all of humanity has exactly the same standing before God with no group being better off than another. Instead, verse 9, we're not all under the law, but we are all under what? Verse 9, sin. We are all under sin. In other words, while not all of us will have been given the heritage of a Jew living under the rule of the law, all of us, Jew and Gentile, are by nature under the control of sin. Sin, our sin, governs us. It's like a tyrant from whom we can't break free. And it's not so much that you're as bad as you could be. No, not at all. It's not that. Rather that everything I do is tinged and tainted with my sinfulness. Any good I do is incomplete and wonky. Because sin is not so much the naughty deeds, is it? It's the selfish hearts from which they come. Sin is like a virus. It's on our hands, it's on our breath, oozing out of us in every moment, infecting all that we do. It's like mud on our shoes when we come inside, leaving a a trail behind us so that no step is unaffected. Everywhere we have been, we've left a little bit of it behind, never rid of these chains of sin under which we live. It's entirely possible that you might be thinking, goodness me, this is 
kind of overdoing it a little bit, isn't it, Paul? People are not really that bad, are they? You know, people do a few things wrong, but they mostly forget it. They, 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 they mostly regret it. They don't hurt anybody. You know, as long as I'm not hurting anybody's feelings, then surely there's nothing to get too concerned about, is there? You know, Paul, listen, I'm a better Christian than most of the other people in this room. Don't tell them, but I am. Surely. This is all a bit Victorian, a bit limiting. Aren't we more enlightened than this now? Well, Paul thinks that's a load of rubbish. None of us are any better than anybody else. And he has three steps to answering those objections in verses 9 to 18, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. He says, firstly, there is no seeking. No seeking in verses 10 to 12. Let let me read those verses to you again. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Those verses, along with all the verses that follow, are a combination of Old Testament quotes that Paul is stringing together to prove his point. These words come from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which themselves are very similar to each other. And the verses couldn't be any clearer, could they? Just look at all the no's. No righteousness, no understanding, no God-seeking, no goodness, nothing but moral worthlessness. It's interesting, isn't it? This is where Paul starts. He doesn't start to prove the sinfulness of humanity that we're all under sin by firstly going into the gutter of our behavior. Paul is not trying to prove our sin by firstly unearthing our most shameful action. Instead, he says, do you want to know that all of humanity is under the power of sin? Well, look at what they say about God. Not the God that they would like to have, not the God that they have imagined who does what they want and obeys their words. No, look at their attitude to the God who is real, the God who made them. No one wants that God, he says. We are repelled by the very holiness that makes God God. We can't stand it and we don't want it. Think about it like this. Just imagine for a moment the, uh, the ministry and life of the Lord Jesus. How, how do you account for the fact that Jesus was so hated so quickly? How can you account for that? You know, Jesus was basically largely unknown for the thir- first 30 years of his life. He started his public ministry when John was arrested and he started preaching in Galilee. It took three years, didn't it, of drawing crowds, healing the sick, preaching the gospel for him to get killed. And he'd never led a riot, he'd never threatened the government, he'd never really pushed himself to the fore. Why was he so hated? Well, Jesus explains himself, John 15, he says this, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled, they hated me without a cause. Just put it together for a minute. Do you notice what's happening here? They hate Jesus because of what he does. And what he does, no one else does. Why, if no one else does it, why can Jesus do it? Because of who he is, right? What he does shows who he is. He's God. He's divine. So they hate him because he's divine. And they hate Jesus just like they hate his father and they're guilty for their sin because their hatred, which is without cause, has been exposed. And that's the uncomfortable truth of Romans chapter 3, that the heart of sin is an inbuilt, it's irrational rejection of God, a failure to love what is lovely before it's a failure to do what is right. And that, says Paul, leaves us worthless, worthless. Not he doesn't mean as in of no intrinsic value as a human being. He's not saying that. Rather, 
morally worthless. In other words, morally of no capital. We have nothing of worth spiritually or morally to claim before God. Before God, you and I are bankrupt, he says, worthless. Out of moral and spiritual cash, nothing to claim before God. None of us can stand and claim before God. Hey, listen, I know this is true about everyone else, but I'm okay. None of us can say that. Listen, just pause there with me for a moment and just, just let's consider this together. There is a humbling truth here that you and I, we have nothing to offer God. There is nothing in us or from us that can count as moral credit before the God who rules and reigns. It doesn't matter if you've been better than the person sat next to you. You might well have been well done for it. But the truth is, we are all stained by this irrational, inbuilt, natural to us as breathing, rejection of the authority of the God who made us. I live for myself, thank you very much. So no one is righteous, not even one. Nextly then, uh, nextly, that's not even a word. Next, bad speaking, bad speaking, verses 13 and 14. Paul lands this irrational, immoral rejection of God in the concrete practice of people in the next couple of verses. Listen to what he says, verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Okay, and you have to say, don't you, this is deeply convicting. If you want a barometer of no one doing good, where do you go? Where, where are you going to go to see that we live in a world that's rejected the God who rules and reigns. Where do you go? Well, all you have to do is listen, he says. You just have to listen. Listen to what's said. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. From it comes words that can kill, drawing people into what does he say? Their throat is an open grave. In other words, their words are ready to swallow you down into death. Our words are ready to swallow one another down into death. Killed by words of wicked intent. Tongues which deceive, he says, lead people astray, intentionally misleading them. And then quoting from Psalm 140, Paul points out that that their words are like a a bag of snake poison that sits under the lips of a viper or an asp, ready to pour poison into the wound which has been punctured by the teeth. So our words pierce and poison, flowing out with curses and growing bitterness as they tear down and destroy. Paul is not pulling any punches, is he? These are painful verses to listen to. And yet this is just the consistent witness of the Scriptures. I listened to a couple of other quotes. This is James writing in his book, referring to the tongue. What does he say? How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. What about 2 Timothy? Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been captured by him to do his will. How are they doing his will? By speaking words, quarreling with words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. 
Of course, though, the point back in Romans chapter 3 is not so much to correct our behavior or even our speech, but really simply just to convict us that before God, our standing is all the same. His point is that while God made the world with his words, we tear it down with our words. We are alike, he says, under sin, ruled and governed by a selfish, God-hating heart that spills out into our speech. Words which we've said, which we should never have said. Oh, Lord, I know I've said those. And I know you have too. It doesn't need to be a loud verbal attack, does it? It can be the hushed whispers of poisonous gossip. I wonder if the, the big news of this week is not so much having a new prime minister. We do that on a semi-regular basis, it seems. Instead, it's Elon Musk, isn't it, taking over Twitter, promising to open it up as a place of global free speech. What a terrifying prospect that is. It's not that freedom of speech is not important. It is important, isn't it, that people are allowed to speak. But Romans 3 warns you that allowing people to say whatever they want to say, whatever the way they want to say it, in a world of unrighteousness will cause a great mess. Why? Well, because none of us are by nature free. Instead, what? We're under sin. We're under the rule of sin. And that comes out in what we say. Finally then, swift running, verses 15 to 17. I'm not going to read these words again just for the sake of time, but here the focus shifts from the mouth to the feet feet which are swift to shed blood, running to kill, following a route of ruin and misery. And it's not simply that they don't walk on the road of peace. Look down um, at verse 17. It's not simply they don't walk the road of peace. They don't even know where it is. They've not known it. They don't know where to go to find it. So we walk in the way that we talk. We're like a, a shopping trolley that veers off in one direction, always drags you that way. So by nature, we're all under sin. We're all going this way, all wandering the road of ruin can't help but go there. On our own, outside of Christ, all of us wander the street of self-destruction, head round the corner of folly and into the pit of ruin and misery, a helpless but still guilty, helpless self-destruction inbuilt into us under the rule of sin. And Paul ends, verse 18, with that conclusion, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, just remember as we finish here that Paul's goal in verse 9, repeated in verses 19 and 20, is he's trying to convince you and I that we should be silent before God. He's trying to convince us that we are under sin, that we have no hope of being declared right by God because of our own obedience. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a churchgoer or an atheist, all of us will be held accountable by God for every sin, and none of us have any hope of being let off in the right judgment of God, in the true judgment of God. And Paul is not teaching us that because he wants to drive us to despair. His point is not to make you feel awful this morning. The purpose is to drive you to Christ because in Christ alone is the solution for our sin. He alone is able to save us from this crashing plane of human sin. Let me try and illustrate this, because it's crucial for us to get how this passage works, so we can apply it faithfully. Imagine with me two people in a Scottish wilderness, and a storm is coming. They can see the grey clouds on the horizon, and they know that that Scottish cold rain is coming. They can feel it almost now, as the wind is picking up, and the first few raindrops fall on their heads. It's that kind of heavy give you hypothermia kind of rain. And they quickly realize, these two 
uh, fellows, that they need to build shelter. We need shelter now because the storm is coming. So they both set about building shelters. The first one doesn't have a Scooby, what he's doing. I haven't got a clue. Oh, I've, I've vaguely heard of shelters before. So he, he starts cutting branches and tries to tie knots, but he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. He's never tied a knot in his life. He doesn't, doesn't know how to do it. And he ends up with a, a pitiful pile of twigs. No use in the impending storm. The storm will get him for sure. He's going to get soaked. He's going to get hypothermia. He's going to die in the wilderness. The other person has this huge advantage of having in their pocket a plan for a shelter, a perfect shelter. So they, they get the plan out, and it's a beautiful picture, and it's in loads of detail as well. Every branch length is marked. Every knot that needs to be tied is detailed. But this person's just as hopeless as the other one. Never tied a knot, unable to cut branches. And despite the great advantage, this person turns out to be just as rubbish at shelter building as the first person. And the end result is just as pathetic. Another pile of sticks with some string on top. No hope of keeping them safe in the storm is doomed. Why? Why are they doomed? Well, because shelter building is beyond their capacity. They simply can't do it. Instead, what they need is a shelter that someone else will build for them. A shelter made to the exact dimensions and proportions to the plan that was in the pocket of the second person. And here's the point. For these people, it is the degree to which they are persuaded that their shelter is rubbish, that they will see their need for another shelter, a better and perfect one. And that's Romans 1 to 3. The storm of God's judgment is coming, says Paul. In a way, it's here already. You can feel the wind. You can, you can feel the raindrops on you, can't you? You can see it in the world around us. Our world lives under the judgment of God in the craziness and the carnage that we see around us. And in the law, what you have is, is a blueprint of divine perfection, a perfection that can stand in the coming storm. But it's not possible to copy it because we're so broken. Rather, it's the outline of Christ and his saving work. And so for you and I, these chapters are written not to crush us, not to crush us with guilt. Guilt like that will not help us. Rather, the point of these chapters is to show us the utter worthlessness of our shelter-building practices. Anything else that you are trusting in for salvation is utterly worthless, says Paul. For all our skill, for all our Bible knowledge, for all our Christian heritage, for all our great desires, our attempt to build salvation for ourselves in the face of God's judgment is utterly hopeless. A pile of sticks in the wind. And listen, this is vitally important for us this morning. Paul's consistent point is that all of us are in that position. This is the great leveler and unifier in the church. We are all the same this morning. We are all silent before the right judge. None of us have anything other than Christ to claim. My pile of sticks is as rubbish as anybody else's. I think I've preached a thousand sermons in front of this church, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't make any difference any more than he will save any of you because you've led a connect group or you've led impact. It's not a shelter in the storm of God's judgment to say, hey, listen, I tried my best at church because by nature we're all under sin and our self-salvation projects are all doomed. And Christian maturity remembers that. Not so much remembers it for everyone else. Oh yes, I know that their shelter building projects are rubbish. No, it's not that. 
They remember it about themselves. Look back at the verses, verse 10. This is the truth of it, isn't it? I have no hope outside of Christ. I'm not righteous. I did not seek God. I've turned aside. I've become morally worthless. I do not do good. My throat is an open grave. I've used my tongue to deceive. Poison has been under my lips. My mouth is full of curses and bitterness. My feet have been swift to shed blood. My path is ruin and misery. I have not known the way of peace. I do not fear God. But Christ is righteous. Christ did not just seek God, but is God. He did not turn aside and is overflowing with moral riches and glory and grace and mercy. He's going around doing good. His throat is not an open grave, but it raises the dead. His tongue tells the truth. Life and healing are under his lips. With Christ's mouth is full of blessing and forgiveness. His feet were not swift to shed blood, but were nailed in blood to the cross. His path was the ruin and misery of the cross, so that the way of peace he might scoop us up and take us on. That we might live in the fear of God. And listen, church family, this morning, the level to which I grasp my own weakness and worthlessness outside of Christ, that level is the level to which Christ will appear as beautiful and as wonderful and as glorious as he is. And if I grasp that, living the Christian life will be full of joy. Full of joy. Let me pray as I close. Take a few moments and you can think and pray in your own hearts. And then I will pray for us. Heavenly Father, the truth is we're not very good at hearing the bad news. Not only because we don't like it, because often we don't treat it in the right way. We hear the bad news and we try and think of reasons why we might not be as bad as others or why it might not be quite relevant to us. Lord, help us not to listen like that. Help us to see that this bad news actually means that the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is more wonderful, more glorious, more joyful than we thought before we came in this morning. Thank you that Christ is sufficient for my every sin. Thank you that where I went wrong, Christ went right. Where I lead people to their death, Christ leads me to resurrection hope. Thank you that he takes us on the way of peace, that we might live in the fear of you, our loving Heavenly Father. Help us, we ask, for we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.